quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. This day will stay in my memory as, as one of the sorrowful, most sorrowful days of my life. In Moscow, crowds risk a Kremlin crackdown to come out for the funeral of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Independent journalist Mikhail Fishman reflects on Navalny's legacy. Then... They're having to sort of improvise a life, as a lot of exiles do. In My Friends, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Hisha Matar weaves together friendship and exile. Plus... One, two... We are the world. We are the children. The greatest night in pop. Hari Srinivasan looks at the making of We Are the World. And later... But for this man, my father uh, would not be here. I would not be here, our children would not be here. I report on the Japanese diplomat who helped save thousands of Lithuanian Jews. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Bianca Goldriga in New York, sitting in for Christian Amanpour. Thousands of Russians lined the streets to honor opposition leader Alexei Navalny, two weeks after his death at the age of just 47 in a remote Arctic prison colony. Navalny's supporters blame Russia's President Putin for his death, which the Kremlin denies. Mourners chanted Navalny, Russia without Putin and no to war. And they paid their respects at his open casket, despite Kremlin attempts to keep Navalny's death out of the limelight. A monitoring group says over 100 people have so far been detained across Russia for paying their respects. Here's what one mourner had to say about Navalny's legacy. For us, and for me personally, was uh, like, I don't know, Russian Nelson Mandela or Russian Martin Luther King. Navalny's widow, Yulia, vows to carry on his struggle. She is in exile, unable to attend her own husband's funeral. And she posted a video saying thank you for 26 years of absolute happiness. Navalny's coffin was lowered into the ground to the tune of Frank Sinatra's My Way. Vladimir Putin, meanwhile, is more defiant than ever, warning of a real threat of nuclear war if the West escalates the conflict in Ukraine. Mikhail Fishman is a Russian journalist who knew Alexei Navalny well. He anchors a popular news program on the opposition station TV Rain, which made its last broadcast from Russia two years ago. I spoke with Mikhail Fishman about Navalny's death and about his hopes for freedom in Russia. Mikhail Fishman, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know this must be a very difficult day for you, for your friends, for colleagues to see um, really the end of a chapter here for uh, the lead opposition figure in Russia, the funeral of Alexei Navalny. How are you feeling? Uh, 
it's uh, it's a very uh, sad day. I think that uh, this is one. Uh, this day will stay in my memory as, as one of the sorrowful, most sorrowful days of my life. It's breaking my heart that I wasn't be wasn't able to to be there with uh, my friends, with uh, where I belong now, uh, and I mean Moscow, where um, Alexei Navalny was buried, uh, but. Uh, I just couldn't go there, uh, and it was impossible for me to go. So, but my heart is there, and uh, my heart will stay there. And uh, it is, uh, yes, it's a, it's a very sad day. Yeah, and just in case our, our viewers are in doubt as to why you can't go there, it's for fear of your own life and your safety. Um, because you as a journalist, an independent journalist, uh, along with your other colleagues, have had to live in exile now in the past few years as Russia has quickly, under Vladimir Putin, turned into an authoritarian state. Um, and yet, yet, uh, Mikhail, we see hundreds, not thousands of people showing up today and paying their respects to Alexei. What does that signal to you? Uh, yes, this is what... This is uh, one of the most sorrowful, but also, I have to say, an inspiring day, uh, because it's uh, because thousands of uh, people showed up, and not only in Moscow. And uh, mm, you know, this is a very uh, special funeral. I've been at uh, Anna Politkovskaya funeral in 2006. I've been at uh, Boris Nemtsov's funeral in 2015, when thousands of uh, uh, people attended, and then. Uh, Dozens of thousands joined the street march to in his in his memory uh, across across Moscow. But now it's very different, and it's a very different funeral because we're talking now about uh, Putin's most uh, uh, prominent, important enemy, personal enemy, and uh, it's not it's different Russia. And I just want to remind you how um, Navalny's mother was fighting to get his body uh, from the hands of law enforcement in the Arctic um, town of Salihar a few days ago. And she was blackmailed uh, beyond any, any understanding of, of, of human norms that something would happen to the body of her son if she wouldn't agree to, um, to, uh, to a secret sort of family uh, funeral. And despite all the intimidation, despite all the repression uh, that uh, Russia is going through now, yet thousands and thousands of people gathered to pay tribute and to say goodbye to Navalny. And that means that, uh, the, that uh, this hope for his uh, hope for a beautiful Russia of the future is not that he is, but uh, but the hope is not. And this is very important. And that's why it was as sorrowful as it is inspiring. You point out something really important, though, the state of where Russia is today and how quickly it has turned uh, into an authoritarian, if not totalitarian, uh, regime where you have to even beg for a mother to see the body of her dead son. You have to go to any means necessary uh, to, to even be able to have the opportunity to bury him, still facing resistance 
from the government. Uh, you know, you are a very pragmatic man and journalist who has covered Russia for many, many years. And I wonder, even for you, the pace, how rapidly the country has descended into totalitarian, to, to authoritarianism, perhaps even totalitarianism at this point, has that surprised you? Uh, I, well, first I have to say that uh, uh, today's funeral, it uh, certainly um, took bravery to show up uh, there and uh, and yet we still don't know what will be the consequences because we know that uh, there are special agents in the crowd who uh, actually gather all the details and, uh, and yeah. uh, film people's faces and we all know that and we don't know, nobody knows what awaits them and what awaits Russia. Uh, Russia is now a totally different state, totally different country, and totally different regime than it was two years ago when, when the war started. And uh, now the just for um, few words in, uh, in, in support for Ukraine or just against the war, you can get a, get a jail term. And that's what we see, uh, what, 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 what happens uh, once in a while, basically on daily basis. So that's what life is now, and it's going, and it's going to yet new level of repression with every new month, and we also see that. I do have to ask you. Um, you know, I, I was really touched by watching TV Rain on the day of uh, Navalny's announced death, and you were on just moments after. You uh, were were pretty friendly with Navalny, and as the whole world was, was very shaken by the news of his death, and you were quite emotional, and I want to read for you your immediate reaction. You said, we have to live with this news somehow, but it will take us some time to accept this. It will not take half an hour or an hour, it will take some extra work on our part. But the scope of what's, what has to happen now, we understand ourselves. We may not sometimes understand results in ourselves, but we understand the seriousness of what happened. What occurred was the instance of dividing our lives into before and after. So talk to us about what you think that after will look like. Um, it, as, of, as of now, this after, of course, looks ominous, quite, uh, quite ominous. And uh, we see Putin showing uh, resolve in keeping, repressing any uh, search for freedom, I would say. Uh, inside in Russia. We just saw a co-chairman of a memorial, a group, uh, a movement. Oleg Orlov was just sentenced to two and a half years uh, of jail for basically just uh, uh, writing an article about uh, the scale of repression in, in, in Russia. That's just happened uh, two days ago. And, uh, and so this after, as of now, looks looks very ominous, of course, because uh, Putin is not going to stop. He, is, uh, he has two wars, actually. He's leading two wars. One in its active phase is against Ukraine, but the other one is against Russia, and he's leading this war for, what, almost 24 years now. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and he's steadily, uh, steadily increasing pressure all, during all these 24 years. And he's never gonna stop until he's stopped. So um, without Navalny, who um, who invented 
basically what makes Navalny so special is that he invented new way of doing politics in an authoritarian state like Russia. He invented how to fight Putin within his own rules of the game. Uh, and now we don't have him. And now as Putin marches into um, what is expected to be a very easy, quote unquote, victory and re-election in the coming weeks, uh, that March 15th through the 17th, it was interesting that uh, I spoke on the day of Navalny's news of his death with a uh, Soviet-born journalist, Peter Pomorontsev, and he said pretty much the only thing that could end Putin's reign at this point is victory for Ukraine. Would you agree with that? Uh, well, the... More or less, yes. That's what um, that, that's that's how the uh, it looks. But it still has to be said that uh, that the search for freedom in Russia is not dead, and uh, and there are millions of people. And we saw these lines to leave signatures in favor of anti-war candidate a few weeks ago uh, before Navalny was was murdered. Not Navalny, but another candidate for his name is Boris Nadezhdin, but who represented the mm -hmm. anti-war sentiment uh, during this election. He was banned from the election, of course, but still we saw these lines of thousands of, uh, of people just to leave their signatures. And whenever there will be a legal way, um, there is so much fear uh, across Russia. And Putin uh, inspired so much fear across Russians that it's hard uh, to ask of much. Uh, but whenever there is a legal way to show the, uh, the anti-war and anti-Putin sentiment, it arises the, the, the next moment. Well, Putin has tried to weaponize fear, and he's done it quite effectively to, um, to stamp out hope to stamp out democracy in the country going forward. And it is notable that uh, Navalny's uh, widow, Yulia, will now be carrying the mantle uh, of his message, of, of his team and his mission. How much hope do you have in what Yulia can do w with this message, with this movement, especially since it's coming from outside the country? I personally felt relieved. I psychologically felt much better immediately. And I know that millions and, of, and millions of Russians felt the, felt the same. We know about her that she's a very brave um, woman. And uh, she has the legitimacy. She has this yeah. light of Navalny coming out of her for sure. We don't know, of course, what kind of political personality she is and, and how she will act. And, but of course, for millions of Russians, it is now uh, the she is the the beacon of this light that Navalny was before, mm -hmm. and she now embodies this hope. So it of course remains to be seen again uh, what the uh, future will bring. But uh, yet uh, the fight is not over, and Navalny's cause is certainly not dead. Um, she put out a, a beautiful tribute to Alexei. I suggest everyone watch. Um, and the background song begins with uh, Please don't die or I will have to as well. And it was just such a gut punch for me to see this, um, uh, this video and to see the two of them together as they once were.
such a beautiful young couple, um, what a promise it was for the country. Uh, before we go, I know, Mikhail, that you had exchanged letters with Navalny when he was in prison as well. Um, he had read your upcoming book on Boris Nimsov, um, uh, who tragically, we just uh, uh, passed his, uh, his anniversary date of his assassination just days ago as well. Is there anything you could share with us about some of the exchanges that you had with Alexei? Yes, yes, I, will. I uh, with 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 great pleasure. I have I have to say, and it's uh, it's such an experience to exchange uh, letters from Nav with Navalny, who is in jail. He was so happy that I shared with him some details about our new our new life, my family's life in exile and in Amsterdam, where we. Uh, are based now where we reside with our little girl now going to school in Amsterdam with a totally new life um, changed from what it, what it's been and so he keeps uh, uh, he uh, so he keep he says thank you so much for sharing this uh, daily routine with me and uh, that's what I so miss so much in prison and uh, uh, I've been in Amsterdam briefly just just once and didn't feel it well but uh, uh, but I but I think Netherlands are such a fabulous, uh, fabulous country. So but please tell me more. Uh, how is life there? Do you how much herring have you eaten? Do you bike? <laughs> um, do you is it true that they all uh, that um, that they all speak English in uh, in the in there? But even if they do, Still, you have to start learning Dutch just out of respect for locals and so on and so on. It's, it's just so touching and so full of his, uh, his, uh, the joy. And uh, yeah. Navalny uh, embraced life. He, he was full of life. And, uh, uh, and he had a happy family. He had a, a loving wife, loving kids. And he was, he knew how to, to put together this this cause he had with just uh, just uh, being a human, enjoying every moment of this life, and uh, this what makes this moment and this loss so uh, so 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 painful, and this is why it's so hard to come to terms with uh, with his death. He was forever an eternal optimist, and that was always something was so powerful to see, no matter what they did to him, no matter how far away they sent him, how isolated he was, um, that optimism was still there for the world to see. Michael uh, Fishman, thank you so much for the time, especially on such a difficult day like today. Thank you. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Well, next, another story of friendship in the shadow of a violent authoritarian regime. Author Hisham Matar won the Pulitzer Prize for his memoir, The Return, an account of his family's exile from Libya under Colonel Muammar Gaddafi and his father's disappearance at the hands of the regime. Matar returns to these themes in his new novel, My Friends, following three Libyan men, refugees in London, confronting politics and deadly protest. Hisham Matar joined Christiane to talk about mysteries of friendship and exile. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You have been doing novels and memoir, in other words, fiction and nonfiction. You've returned to fiction with My Friends. And I want to ask you, because mm. many of us remember that in 1984, which is loosely around when this book is, yeah. is based, there was an anti-Gaddafi protest outside the embassy in London. People were shot from inside. A police woman was shot and killed. Is that what inspired you to use that setting for this book? Was it a real life event? It was, I mean, that event really surprised me that it was in the book. I didn't expect it to be. It's an event that marked me. I was younger than my protagonist. I was 13 when it happened. And where were you when it happened? I was in Cairo. I saw it on the news. And I remember hearing one of the demonstrators who was wounded, screaming and twisting on the ground. And I thought I heard him call for his mother. And then I disbelieved my ears. And then one of the adults in the room said, as though to himself, he said, I think he just called for his mother. And it really marked me that. It really stayed with me. As you speak, I'm thinking of George Floyd. It's mm. so many people yeah. in the last throes of life call for their mother. And you've written it, marked you as a young man and a writer. So how many years was this gestating, you know, and, and what made you put it together as, uh, in your return to fiction? About 10 years before I sat down to write the book, I had written a page that I thought was... I don't know, I just thought it had in it everything that what I feel a novel needs to have, you know, a certain kind of tone and honesty. And it seemed all integral somehow, like the first note of a, of a symphony. And I just didn't know what the rest would be like. And I carried that page with me for that decade whilst writing other books. Um, and then, you know, sat down and, and wrote the and book. And you have it, because we've asked you to read it's a passage, still, and I think this is the one that you've chosen to read. It's still the first page. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is, of course, impossible to be certain of what is contained in anyone's chest, least of all one's own, or those we know well, perhaps especially those we know best. But as I stand here on the upper level of King's Cross Station, from where I can now monitor my old friend Hussam Zua walking across the concourse, I feel I'm seeing right into him, perceiving him more accurately than ever before, as though all along, during the two decades that we have known one another, our friendship has been a study, and now 
Ironically, just after we have bid one another farewell, his portrait is finally coming into view. And perhaps this is the natural way of things, that when a friendship comes to an inexplicable end, or wanes, or simply dissolves into nothing, the change we experience at that moment seems inevitable. A destiny that was all along approaching, like someone walking towards us from a great distance, recognizable only when it is too late to turn away. No one has ever been a nearer neighbor to my heart. It's very beautiful, it's very evocative, and it's very, I mean, this book, I mean, it's called My Friends, but it's friendship, it's exile, it's, mm. you know, it's, it's yeah. being in a foreign land, obviously, it's yeah. leaving your home, your family, yeah. it's grief. Yeah, yeah, several, all of that was on my mind. But also this thing that you could have almost like, in a, it, you know, another sort of musical metaphor, you know, a polyphony, you can have two notes at the same time, one note being the past and everything that you've said, these characters are from Libya, they are exiled here in London. But the other note is London because he tells the story as he walks across the city back to his home. He walks from St. Pancras to Shepherd's Bush where he lives. And so we have both of those together. And the other thing that I was interested in is I was interested in questions of temperament, yeah. you know. Because if you have been through violent political ruptures, you know, such as the event that you alluded to in St. James's Square, but also the Arab Spring, and these characters are embroiled in the Arab Spring. Um, as I was myself and many people I, I, I know, you begin to become acquainted with this question of temperament that is very difficult to talk about in politics. You know, Where people end up isn't always because of their ideology and ethics and so on. It's also to do with this thing that I'm calling temperament. You know somebody's personal taste, how some people are enlivened by argument, others aren't, for example. <laughs> and I thought the novel is really the place for temperament, you know. So to write a book about friendship, these three friends, male friends, um, but also to write a book about how their temperaments get them to where they And these up. three friends, certainly Khaled, the protagonist, this event pretty much distant themselves from their land, Libya, right? Yeah. They, you, Khalid could not go back. Yeah, as many people who were shot that day in, in 17th of April 1984 in front of the embassy here in London, uh, couldn't go back. Their, their whole life has been derail derailed. They can't resume their scholarships because they feel marked. They can't return home because they're worried about being persecuted. Um, and it's really, you know, they're young, you know, and these characters are 18 when this happens, and they're having to sort of improvise a life, as a lot of exiles do. You know, this question of improvising, translating the place, translating yourself into the place. Uh, and making new relationships outside yeah. your family. Yeah. I'm really interested because, you know, again, you were outside this country. Your father uh, was a pretty much an opposition figure, an opposition mm. figure in, in, against Gaddafi. Mm. This was an anti-Qaddafi uh, demonstration preceding yeah. the Arab Spring by several decades. What did your father say to you about this, or your mother, when it was actually happening, when you were in Cairo? Well, when, you, he, was he there? Yes. Yes, when we were watching it on the news, yes. you know, we were all there. And uh, we were very upset by it. It was very, it was quite a moment because I think it was, it really showed the extent to which the Libyan regime was willing to go to punish and silence dissent, um, inside and outside. So it was quite an unsettling moment. 
But it's, mm. it's desperately unsettling and tragic for yourself because mm. then your own father fell victim to these forces. Yes, absolutely. And that's your book, yeah. famous book. You're best known for The Return, which won the Pulitzer Prize, yeah. a memoir, fact, about the, your activities of your father and the fact that he disappeared into the gulag system yeah. and you've never found him. Yes, my father was kidnapped from his home in Cairo um, in 1990. And, um, and he was um, taken to, to, to Libya and imprisoned, um, but never acknowledged by the regime. He wasn't put on trial or anything like that. So they've always denied uh, having him there. And I've pretty much spent the majority of my life looking for him, campaigning, trying to find where he is, what might have happened to him. And when the regime fell in 2011, a year later I went to Libya really for the first time in 33 years uh, by that stage, um, to look for my father, to reconnect with the people and the places that I love, but also to find out what might have happened to him. And The Return is really a book about all of that, but it's also, I think of it as a book, as a state of emergence, you know, um, where all of the details come, came up to the surface for me, you know, the quiet and the loud details, and that book really tries to attend to all of that. But you didn't get closure, right? You never got an answer as to where, what happened or where your father's body might be. You spoke no. to, how on earth you did this, to Gaddafi's son, Saif al-Islam. Well, I had a big campaign, you know, of, of uh, press and media and uh, through, you know, international human rights organizations trying to find out the whereabouts of my father. And in the midst of all of that, I made contact with Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, who was then heir apparent, but also somebody who was at least, sincerely or not, talking the language of reform. And so we thought, how might we try to um, use this opportunity to perhaps get him to confirm the whereabouts of not only my, fa my father, but other political prisoners that had gone missing. Uh, um, and so I engage in this exchange with him over a period of, of a few weeks, which I, which I documented the book. Mm -hmm. um, didn't lead anywhere. Um, Were you glad that you did it? Or was it, was it worth it? That's a hard question to answer. I mean, it was worth it because um, any attempt to try to find my father, any attempt that doesn't lose me my, my integrity, of course, mm -hmm is, 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 is yeah. worth it. Uh, but is it worth it in the sense, did I yield results? No, and did it tax me in sense of stress? And of course it did, but I think that was just part of the struggle really. Because yeah. you've written, there is shame in not knowing where your father is, shame in not being able to stop searching for him, and shame also in wanting to stop searching for him. Yeah. That's, you know, you, the two feelings are colliding yeah. there. Yeah, because that goes to the heart, you see, I think what's interesting about all this, and when you write about it, you have to think beyond the facts, as it were, right? Why make somebody disappear? It's much easier and cheaper, if we want to be crude about it, to just kill them. Making somebody disappear is a lot of work. Um, so, so part of the question in my teenage years and in my 20s was not only where is my father, but why would somebody do that? And part of the answer that I arrived at is that they, part of the intention, conscious or not, is to make you also disappear. To make you, in other words, become inarticulate, frightened, not know what to do, right? So part of the struggle is to find your father, but also to find your voice. 
And, and finally, given the world we live in right now, the, the connection between art and this kind of yeah. personal and yeah. political drama. Of course, obviously, a month in Siena is yeah. all about, you know, somebody wrote, I think, in the New York Times, have you ever seen how Hisham Mata looks at art in mu yeah. museums? Yeah. And you're there for weeks looking at maybe one painting, yeah. Yeah. but it was because you were trying to process all this grief, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, I thought for, Tell us how you look at it. For a long time, I thought it was just a coincidence that around the time that my father disappears, I begin to look at paintings in this slightly peculiar way, where I go and just look at one picture every day in my lunch break, and then after a week or so, I'll change to another picture. But now, with the benefit of hindsight, I still do this, but with the benefit of hindsight, I think maybe it does make sense, because in a moment of inarticulacy, of disappearance, I went to arguably the most generous, most appearing things, paintings, right? They were very articulate and very giving. And um, so that became very important to me. And yeah. And just finally, because we have some, you know, they're, they're small <coughs> moments, even in the Palestinian crisis yeah, right now, of yeah. art showing up. Um, yeah. There's a museum in the occupied West Bank showing the work of hundreds of artists yeah. from Gaza. There's a huge pile of rubble in the center symbolizing the destruction. Yeah. You know, how does art fit, do you think, in the big picture in these kinds of crises? Well, this is what, partly what I meant by a state of emergence about the return. You know, Walter Benjamin describes emergencies. He says there's something interesting about He's emergencies. He's the well-known Jewish philosopher, yeah. right? There's something interesting about emergencies because in a state of emergency is also a state of emergence, that things come up to the surface. And I feel that very much about what's happening now in Gaza, that it's also a state of emergence because you're seeing as though the mask has dropped on several things. The mask has dropped on the Israeli national project. Now you see it for what it is. It's being described in that language. And it has been also uh, underreported, you know, because uh, Netanyahu and Naftali Bennett and co have been talking this language for a while, you know, that they, they see Israel as being from the river to the sea. There's no two states um, and so on. And so you also, so you see the mask drop in that sense. But you also see the mask drop in, in to what extent uh, Israel's allies are willing to, to, to go in order to, to abide by this level of violence. And you also see the mask drop in the inability of Arabic countries to do anything about it. And why, actually, a lot of people... Uh, I mean, Netanyahu was, if we remember, a lot of people forget this, he was one of the, the loudest, most early critics of the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. Because why would you want a democracy uh, uh, in countries that you want to have influence on their leaders? It's very difficult to control governments if they are accountable to their people. And so it seems to me a, a moment of emergence on all of these levels, that you're really seeing a, a very dark um, set of truths emerge. And we will see where they lead. Hishamata, thank you so much, my friends. Thank you. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us.
wherever you get your podcasts. Well, now let's rewind almost four decades to the night 46 of America's biggest music stars gathered in the same studio to record the charity single, We Are the World. The artists were told to, quote, check their egos at the door in the name of helping people affected by famine in Ethiopia and other African countries. Well, the record became one of the top selling singles of all time, raising $60 million for the cause. And the remarkable all-nighter behind it is the focus of a new Netflix documentary, The Greatest Night in Pop. Here's a clip from the trailer. We just thought we'd pull together as many artists as we could and figure it out. It was just a wish list. I said yes without knowing who was going to be on it. Bob Dylan. Stevie Wonder. Paul Simon. Cindy Lauper. Pat Midler. Billy Joel. Steve Perry. Willie Nelson. I think we have Tina. Sheila E. Diana Ross. Everybody was there. Also there that night was Tom Baylor, a vocal arranger who worked on the song. Hari Srinivasan speaks to him alongside the film's director, Bao Wen. Director Bao Wen and vocal arranger uh, Tom Baylor, thank you both for joining us. Tom, I want to start with you. You were there that night. How'd you hear about this project? How'd you get involved? Well, Quincy Jones and I started working together uh, early in the 70s, and uh, he had heard some arrangements. I got a call, and he said, uh, what are you doing? Do you have time to come over? And I said, sure. So I went over, and he said, I just heard from... I just heard from Ken Cragen, and this is what's happening. And that's when he said, you know, uh, you know the song, Do They Know It's Christmas? And Bob Geldof did a great job with that. And it's a wonderful song. But but the, here's the concept. You know, look at what Geldof did, and we're going to do it with more people because we know that the American Music Award, the, Ken put this together immediately in his head. I think it took him five minutes to really make the map that we would follow from there on. So you, so there's a, there's a, literally a, a night where you're about to record a song with probably the biggest names in music in America, certainly, all assembling under one roof for just a few hours. By the time the stars came in, the song was written, but it was only written seriously a few days before that. And it was wonderful being on that team. Uh, we had meetings where we normally, when we go in to record, we don't think of what could go wrong, yeah. you know? But with this, we had to go in and say, what could go wrong and how, and what are we going to have for it? It's like uh, Quincy was the general and we were we were uh, looking at, at it as going to war. You only yeah. have one shot, you know? You don't go out there and say, oops, I forgot my bullets, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So that was kind of the way it started. One, two. We are the world. We are the children. The greatest artists of a generation came together to save some lives. Must be in a dream, huh? Hello, hello. But we only had one night to get this right. Let's get this party started. Bao, what made you interested in well, making this film. Yeah, I should say that I was only two years old when the song came out. <laughs> I um, didn't want to embarrass you there, but yeah. You know, but I mean, I I remember the song growing up because my parents, um, they had recently come over to America. They were Vietnamese refugees. 
and they spoke very little English at that time. This was the the mid eighties and um, they had Lionel Richie records. They had Kenny Rogers records and they had the record of we are the world. So I remember hearing that song growing up in my household and in a way the song was a bridge to my American upbringing and my parents, you know, refugee immigrant yeah. upbringing. And so it, it had personal resonance. I didn't understand the global impact of the song until my producer, you know, Julia Nottingham, who I produced my last film with, um, she came to me with the story of We Are the World. She was like, do you know the song? And I was like, of course I know the song. But when she told me how it all happened in one night and sort of the global impact of the song once it came out, it became really interesting for me as a filmmaker to see like how I can turn what was seemingly you know, I mean, obviously it's a very iconic song, but for people who don't work in the music industry, we don't really know how the sausage is made in many ways yeah. and just hear how unique it was. And um, as you know, Tom was saying, it was one night, it was a lot of sort of troubleshooting, um, a lot of impossible tasks that had to be done and getting all these, you know, 40 plus superstars in one room to record a song that was just written a couple of days earlier. I found the story to be really compelling on top of how much, uh, you know, resonance the song had globally. When I arrived at the studio, I realized it was the cream of the crop of pop music for that time. Oh my God, I think it is. Oh my God. It was just overwhelming. Walkie talkies is how we communicated who was showing up, who was here, who just got here. There's a point in the film, Tom, where you mentioned that Quincy Jones put up a sign that said, what, check your ego at the door? That's correct, that's correct. And, and uh, how, how do that many people who are literally on the top of their game, uh, you know, extolled by everyone in music, showing up at a massive awards, how are they expected to do that? Well, you know what? It, they got the feeling because we were there for a higher purpose, all of us. And it was told to us earlier, everybody that worked on that did it pro bono. All the cameramen, the studio, all of us, and it has been pro bono ever since. And they raised so much money. So we knew going in that we were there to save lives. So Val, uh, how did you kind of discover this archive? What was available? And then what struck you when you realized what you had to work with? I mean, I think I owe it all to my producer, Julia Nottingham, who, you know, we had never worked on a music documentary together and we had no connection to Lionel Richie or the Michael Jackson estate. And Julia happened to be working with this company called MRC, which at the time owned Dick Clark Productions, and they produced the American Music Awards. And we knew the American Music Awards was an important um, you know, aspect of the story. And so MRC told Julia to call this guy, Larry Klein, who's in the film. He's a producer in the American Music Awards. And so she cold calls him and does a pitch of the film. And Larry's like, I've been waiting for this call for 35 years. Um, <laughs> and... And he was the one who connected us to Lionel, to USA for Africa, which is, you know, the entity that basically was formed for the song. And they had all this footage, um, you know, over the course of decades, the footage has been damaged and it hasn't been kept in the best shape, to be honest. Some of it was found in the trunk of a car. <laughs> um, and I, you know, they, they made 
this recording for the music video and for uh there was a you know a tv special that jane fonda hosted immediately after the song came out and that was the intention of the recording there was no you know no one would think 40 years later that um a film would be made and put on netflix right um so we, we got lucky and it goes to the tenacity of of our producers and also you know i think the the richness of the footage isn't just the visual um archival a lot of the archival that was recorded didn't have any audio or the audio was going straight into the recording mix. And so you would only hear when they were singing the song, you wouldn't, all these sort of side conversations came from the work of David Breskin, who was a um, journalist covering the recording for Life Magazine at the time. And he turned on his dictaphone immediately when he got the assignment. He did all these interviews with Ken Cragen, with uh, Lionel, with Quincy Jones. And we hear a lot of those conversations in the beginning of the film. Um, but it was also him you know, holding up the dictaphone to Bruce Springsteen when Bruce Springsteen's recording and doing sort of the the side takes and everything like that, where we get, again, that texture and that richness of the audio matching with what we got from USA for Africa. Tom, what's amazing is when you see footage of these superstars without their entourages, it's almost like going back to like some sort of high school band camp vibe where they're just normal human beings. Normally when an artist goes into a recording studio, we start in the we start in the booth to learn the song or to talk about what we're gonna do, how we're gonna record it and everything. Because it's like a womb. It's a safe place to learn and, and become acquainted with what we're gonna do tonight. Well, with 46 people, we could not put them in the booth. So we had to do it in the studio, which is huge. So when we got in the big room, I felt an unsettledness. And my job was to uh, to get them all singing it. But there was I felt no negativity. It was just a, a, a little bit of looking around and think, oh, my God, I got every one of her records. Oh, I, I love her. I love him. I love you know, I mean, all of the stars were doing that. And it was great. It was a great idea. Again, Ken Cragen, that there was no entourage hmm. because they entered and they're all like a band camp. Just what you said. You nailed it, man. And and but the, what really broke the ice was Diana Ross. Diana walks up to Daryl Hall with her music in her hands and says, Daryl, I'm your biggest fan. Would you sign my music for me? And we all looked around and said, holy moly. As soon as she did it, it just started happening all over the room. Saying Cindy Lauper, asking Lionel or the boss, you know, that's dope that they want to get each other's autograph. And then they come and ask me, and I'm like, they want my autograph? Like, wow, that's really cool, you know? And for the next 45 minutes, we signed each other's music. And at the end of that 45 minutes, we went from being unsettled to being a family. And that broke the ice. And it was like, and Quincy comes out of the booth and said, Let's chop some wood. Bao, what was the most surprising part when you look through this? Is there a musician or a performance or a look that somebody gave that stuck out to you or it was unexpected? I mean, as we were talking about, I think like seeing these icons of icons be, be like their 
at the first day of school, right? Um, says that in the film, it felt like the first day of kindergarten. I think we, anyone around the world sort of knows that feeling of being the first, you know, at the first day of school and to see like Diana Ross and Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen feel that way. It was something that was really humanizing and just like created this proximity that I think was really important for the film is to take these great artists and, and bring them into a room and bring them to a space where every viewer can feel like they felt the same way. Um, I mean, in terms of like specific scenes, I think Bob Dylan, uh, for me and his journey in the film and through the night was really unique and, and really inspiring in many ways, because again, you know, he comes into a space that's not necessarily a space that he used, he's used to. Um, and then he asked for help, you know, he asked for Stevie wonders help to help him sing his line, which I think is such a beautiful, um, touching vulnerable moment that, Again, Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder, but for them to kind of help each other out in that moment was really beautiful. So, Tom, I got to ask, how in the world, how does your brain work where you put these pairings together? Well, you used the magic word. You said, how did you get your brain to do this? I didn't. <laughs> I followed my instincts. I made a list. Uh, Quincy and I made a list of the the, the probable uh, soloists. And once, and Quincy said, uh, <clears throat> I have two requests because Lionel was the first one to start this song, to write it. I would like for his voice to be the first voice we hear. And then on the first chorus, because Michael finished the song, we'd like to have Michael to sing the first chorus. And then halfway through, and this is Quincy's <laughs> wonderful sense of humor. He said, uh, I want Diana <clears throat> because they're so close and this will prove to people that they're not one person. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, that was, that was the way, but that was what, that was my template. And he said, now the rest of it's yours. So once we had, <clears throat> if you listen to that first chorus, Michael has a very pure voice and so does Diana. And after that, I knew that there was another chorus coming up and what, who was going to do that? And immediately, in my imagination, these singers started standing up. It was Springsp Springsteen to come in and sing it the way I'm talking right now. You know, it was, we are the world, you know. We are the world. Is so different than my Hugo, that beautiful, pure, loving sound, you know? So that's the way it worked. And then I started looking at the, and as I looked at the next, num, uh, the next solo possibility, the person that I picked popped up in my imagination. I'm serious. It was like they were waiting out line and they, and I opened the door by looking at the lyric and in they come in. That's, that's the way it came together. Seriously. It took me only about 30 minutes to assign. About there were several times where you kind of referenced the fact that it's now later and later and later in the night. It is now earlier and earlier in the morning. Right. I don't think people realize that this was an all night jam session with these huge names as you were asking earlier, these voices are the voices of a generation. It's easy to kind of just uh, shine a camera on someone and just let them go. But it's really creating those moments of tension, 
of vulnerability, of anxiety that created the propulsiveness, I think, of the night um, and, and making it um, not just kind of a conventional music documentary, but something that would be engaging to audiences who might not know who some of these artists are and might not know what the song is. And so I was always trying to engage the storytelling aspect with also this, you know, fly in the wall observational style of just being in the room with all these amazing artists. And again, you know, to see um, how in one moment they are very nervous and when they step up to the mic, you know, the, the beauty of human creativity and artistic ability just shines so quickly. Um, and that, that was really interesting to me as, as an artist and just seeing people's process, how nervous they get right before they have. And I think sometimes, you know, that sense of grit, that pressure and just all these artists around them make them shine even more. Hey, Tom, you think that that's, this is possible today? I think, I think the glue for this entire endeavor <clears throat> was that we were serving a higher purpose. It wasn't about us. We were tools in doing something that was going to feed people, give them medicine and give them clothing. And that was why we were there. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been there. And I think that that permeated the, the entire night. I felt it. It really was a flowing, loving night. And and I love the fact that Bao put the last the last statement in there when we were leaving at eight o'clock in the morning. And it was it was down to Ken Cragen, Quincy Jones, Diana Ross, and me are walking out of the studio. And of course the sun's up, it's eight o'clock in the morning. And I'm we're walking to our car and, and all of a sudden I hear Diana crying. And 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 Quincy is walking with her and he says, Diana, are you OK? And she said, I don't want this to be over. <laughs> and that was that was to me really the, the hallmark of the night is that it 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 was such a great example of we were there to make something and we did it. Tom Baylor, the vocal arranger for the song We Are the World, and Bao Wen, the director of The Greatest Night in Pop. You can see that on Netflix now. Thank you both for joining us. Thank, Thank you, Ronnie. I watched that video so many times. What a great story. And finally, a reminder of light shining through darkness. At the height of World War II, one Japanese diplomat in Lithuania defied his government and issued visas that helped thousands of Jews escape the Soviets and later the invasion of Nazi Germany. This week, Chun Sugihara was honored in Chicago by survivors, their many descendants, and his own relatives for his life-saving works. But for this man, my father uh, would not be here. I would not be here. Our children would not be here. Japanese diplomat Chun Senpo Sugihara helped save thousands of Jews fleeing Lithuania during World War II. Generations of Holocaust survivors and their families gathered in Chicago this February to celebrate Sugihara's legacy and to honor him. My story is a miracle. We were captured by the Nazis when I was seven years old. Because of the brilliance of my parents, we escaped. And there, another miracle occurred. Chihun Sugihara issued over 2,000 visas. 
After Germany invaded Poland in 1939, tens of thousands of Jews fled to Lithuania. Sugihara was the first Japanese diplomat posted there. And in the summer of 1940, a large number of Jewish refugees gathered outside the Japanese consulate, looking for visas that would allow them to pass through Japan before seeking refuge in a third country. Despite receiving orders from Tokyo that all visa holders must have finished their procedure for their entry visas and have money to travel, Sugihara defied his government, and in less than two months, he issued over 2,000 visas to Jews and their families. Sugihara died in 1986. His granddaughter and great-granddaughter attended the ceremony. As a young generation, I sometimes see the world a bit pessimistic way, but his action is so impactful. To stand up against immorality is the greatest deed you could do in a lifetime. Just a year after Sugihara issued the visas, Germany invaded Lithuania. When Sugihara got back to Japan after the war, he was forced to retire, but not without saving the lives of thousands during his career. It's something that should be told and should give an inspiration to others to save those who are in need. Years later, he said, I couldn't abandon those people who had come to me for help. I didn't do anything special. I just did what I had to do. Thank you. His courage and sacrifice continues to be honored all these years later. A brave man who stood up against immorality. Well, we began tonight's show with tributes being paid by a different man, Alexei Navalny, and paid to him in Moscow. His daughter Dasha has posted on social media vowing to make her father proud. She said, quote, I will live my life the way you taught me, adding, most importantly, with the same bright smile on my face. Meanwhile, people are gathering in other cities around the world to pay their respects to the Russian opposition leader, Tbilisi, Georgia, in London in the UK. And we leave you with these pictures from Munich and Berlin in Germany, an outpouring of grief and respect way beyond Russia's borders. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.